my name is Tim. If you're new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you on board uh, for today. Please keep your Bibles open to that passage. Um, we're going to be digging into Thessalonians 1, Thess- 1 Thessalonians 2. But before we do, I'm going to pray. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray as we pray every week that you would be with us by your Spirit, that you would help convict our hearts, that you would help us to hold on to what is true and drop what is false, and that it may genuinely be good for us and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let me paint you an all too familiar scene at my house anyways. Um, Names have been withheld to protect the anonymity of those involved, but I think you'll recognise something of this nature. Uh, Child one, let's call them, is busying themselves, playing, reading, watching the television, doing something, whatever. When child two appears and says something to the effect of, you've got to take the bins out. What's the inevitable response of child one at this point? Any guesses? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Absolutely. Not in my house, Jason. (laughs) Nine times out of ten, I would wager that the response from child one will be something along the lines, who said? (laughs) Often said with a bit of a curled lip, a bit of a snarl, there's a definite tone of resistance, defiance in the intonation of the question itself, maybe even a hand on the hip and a waggle as they say. You know what I'm talking about. But why does child one respond this way? Why does child one respond this way? Well, it's a question of authority. And child one asks this question because authority structures matter. Authority is a big deal. It really matters. It's important. And child one's question is a question about authority. On whose authority is child two making this demand? Because if it's just on the basis of child two's authority alone, you know what the answer will be. Well, you... <laughs> you're not the boss of me. I was born first anyways. You can't... You know what I'm talking about, don't you? This is not... I don't believe that anyone's unaware of this. But when the reply comes, well, mum or dad said you had to, well, that's a different story. See, that's a trump card. That's upping the ante a little bit. And only after child one has gone and confirmed that it is mum or dad who really stands behind this instruction, only then will they submit to the request because authority structures matter and they're important. Now, this dynamic, I think, is easy to identify among children and particularly among siblings. But the same can be said of adults, you realise. This same dynamic, this same question of authority as it relates to different demands placed upon you from an outside source, this same question of of authority is often the first place our human instincts go to in response to such questions or demands. The issue may be a little bit more complicated than who's putting the bins out. The the dialogue is probably a little bit more sophisticated than who said, mum or dad said, go and ask if you don't, I hope it's more sophisticated than that. But I hope you realise, essentially, it's the same question of authority that is high on the agenda of adults as well as children. And, and why is it? Because we all want to be in authority. We all want to be masters of our own ship, quite naturally. No one likes being told what to do by someone else. We all want to be the kings and queens of our own little independent empires. And biblically speaking, that's actually not terribly surprising. In fact, biblically speaking, this is entirely consistent with what we read about the sin nature we've inherited from Adam and Eve as the first humans and as our representatives. 
You see, just like them, just like the fact that they chose to ignore God's authority and instead to seek autonomy and self-governance for themselves, pretending that they deserve the right to determine between good and evil. That's, that's the nature of the language or the temptation that comes in Genesis 3. It's exactly how everyone still operates. By nature, today, we still operate this way. I'm the boss of me. I'm the master of my life. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. And we all claim this independently of each other, that we all have ultimate authority. But the truth is, friends, I think you know this, the truth is that no matter how egalitarian our society or our culture becomes, we cannot and we ought not abandon the idea of authority structures altogether. I want to say that for social beings like humans, authority structures are both a reality, unavoidable reality, and a necessity. And this says nothing about it. It ought not be a grading system to determine dignity, value, or worth. It must never be about that. Uh, Let me give you, for example, I mean, my kids are absolutely equal to me in all three regards. On a score of dignity, value, and worth as uh, co-image bearers of, of made in the image of God, That's true. They're co-equal with me, but I'm in authority at home. Make no mistake about that. In fact, it's my wife and I who decide who takes the bins out. Me, obviously. But it's my wife and I who decide who takes the bins out, and that's not going to change in a hurry. And I want to say that's actually really good for my kids too. Because on the question of authority, the issue is not that someone is in authority, As I said, this is necessary for communal functioning on every level. The bigger, more important question is, who is in authority? That's a key question in life generally. Whose authority are you under? Is it a valid authority? What do they do with that authority? But it has particular import, this question, in today's section from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Because as we've already heard over the last couple of weeks, Paul came to uh, the Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, with a message. Paul came to the Thessalonians with a message, a gospel message, a big, important, significant news message. And if this message was legit, if it was with hunky-dory, ridgy-didge, it was a message that had radically had to. In fact, it, had, it came with authority that radically had to change everything about how the Thessalonians thought, lived, did everything. If it's true... It's a message of authority that must change their belief and value structures. It was a message that had to change the way they practically lived. It was a message that had to change or reorient their future outlook. It came with authority that reached even beyond themselves, beyond death, even beyond their own physical existence on earth. You see, Paul wasn't trying to sell them a set of steak knives. He wasn't doing that sort of Daniel's Direct style, you buy these steak knives, man, your life is going to go out of control, fantastic. It wasn't like that. That's not what he came to do. Paul came preaching a gospel, the the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. A man who existed in real time and space, who had lived and died only a few decades beforehand, and who had inexplicably risen from the grave, literally defeating the power of death just three days after his execution. And Paul points to this feat as the final and unequivocal proof that Jesus' earlier claim to be the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the one whom the whole Jewish scriptures were pointing to and waiting for, 
the exclusive saviour of the world and the fulfilment of all of God's promises, especially his promise to invite all nations to share in his blessings. Jesus was the man. And if that's so, that it included uh, a message of authority for those in Thessal- uh, Thessalonica. It's a significant message, don't you realise, folks? It's an enormously potent proposition that Paul is making. It's the sort of news that you can't just sort of uh, hear and shrug your shoulders, oh, whatever, big whoop. No, you can't. You, you, you oughtn't do that anyways because the stakes are too high. The claim is too, well, it's too urgent. It's too personally pressing. It's, it's really personal and it has ultimate significance if true. News like that really does demand a response. So how did the Thessalonians respond? Well, it's a question of authority. Who says? On whose authority or in whose authority did Paul and Silas and his mates mates make this claim about Jesus of Nazareth? And as we read in the scriptures, there's two camps that emerge in response to those two questions. In fact, I think we've read a little little section from this chapter already, but in Acts 17, if you're a Bible flicker, by all the means, flick there, but this will come up on the screen. In Acts 17, verse 4, we actually hear about Paul and Silas's Uh, work in uh, Thessalonica and here's how we read or here's how we see the two groups responding read it with me it says there Acts 17 4 some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women we'll talk more about that group in a moment but first verse 5 identifies the other camp verse 5 says but other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And what was the nature of this group's complaint? Have a look halfway through verse 6. Here's what they say. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Do you hear this? this? This camp has heard the claims of Jesus' universal kingship and they've rejected the authority of it, preferring and deferring instead to the authority of the Roman emperor, Caesar, as the higher authority. In effect, what they're doing in they're rejecting Paul's message of Jesus' universal authority and they're rejecting it as the mere claims of a man, most likely a crazy man, a lunatic. Paul, he's a whack job. Now, I don't think I have to convince you, flash forward 2,000 years, I don't think I have to convince you that some people have the same response to the Bible or to God's Word all the time. People today still hear something of the message that Paul and the other apostles preached about Jesus, that message which is now codified for us in our Bibles, and they immediately reject it as insignificant or unimportant work of man's creation. They immediately dismiss it as a fiction of antiquity, believed only by the weak or the extremely gullible. You may be here with a similar opinion today. But I want to ask the question, what's the basis for that position? What's the basis for that argument or that rejection? Why did people then and people now so quickly and readily dismiss Paul's preached gospel? Well, let me tell you why. Now, hear this. It's very important I don't want to say that people both then and now do not reject the gospel for lack of credibility. 
Do you hear that? People, both then and now, do not reject the, the gospel or the huge news of Jesus' universal lordship for a lack of evidence. No, no, people reject it at bottom for a lack of preference. Do you understand what I'm saying here? People who genuinely hear the gospel and reject it immediately do so because they hear the challenge to their existing authority structures. And rather than examine the strength of the claim or the validity of the authority, they reject it because, well, let's be honest, they just don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It's calling me to rethink and reevaluate and reorder my life, my worldview, and therefore my life choices too. And I don't want to do that. I prefer the status quo. I'm, I'm quite happy with the way things are. And so therefore, I will ignore and reject this as bogus. That's essentially what's going on in the rejection of the gospel. People don't often articulate it that way, but that's what's going on at bottom. Now, I realize that that's a strong claim, and I'm not backing down from the fact that it's a very bold statement to make. But I say it with purpose. I say it with reason, and I say it with conviction. And here's why. Because it's exactly what the first rejectors of the gospel did as well. It's exactly what we read the Jews doing who rejected Paul's message in Thessalonica. We read it, we read it there in Acts 17.5. Why do, they do, why do they, the Jews reject it? Uh, it says this, but the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters and started a riot. You see, what happened here, it wasn't for a lack of evidence of Paul's claims. They had the access to the evidence. It was for a lack of willingness to submit. They were jealous. They were concerned about the very real threat to their own positions of authority if the gospel was true, and so they kicked off royal. You know, Peter says something very similar early, earlier in Acts. This one will come up on the screen as well. Addressing the Jewish crowd in Acts 2.22, he says this. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You hear what he's doing there? Peter is pressing upon these people their first-hand knowledge, first knowledge of Jesus' divine authority displayed among them. They were witnesses to Jesus' authority over nature. They were witnesses to Jesus' authority over sickness. They were witnesses to Jesus' authority over demons, even over death. They saw his authority up close and personal, and what did they do with it? Verse 23, Peter says, This man was handed over to you. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That is staggering, isn't it? They had the evidence. And yet they rejected Jesus' authority. Not because they didn't see it, not because they didn't like sorry, not because they didn't see it, but because they didn't like it. And I want to say the same is true for people today. Those who reject the authority of Jesus explained and testified to through the gospels do not do so for lack of evidence nor for a lack of opportunity to dig in and discover the credibility of the claims or the genuine intellectual warrant for belief and they reject it ultimately because they do not want it to be true friends is that you is that someone you know I've spoken to lots of people over the, over the years. Not many people articulate it this way, but I do remember one guy who said just that to me. He was a, um, a traveller. He was walking through Wagga. I hit him up down the town, have a yarn with him about the gospel one time. He actually knew a fair bit about it. And when I asked him, what's, what's your response to that? He said, no, no, I understand what you're saying, Tim. He said, um, he said I guess the, the issue is I just, I, just don't, I just don't want it to be true. 
I understand the claim you're making. I understand the claim of Christ. But if that's true, then it means huge changes. And to be honest, I just don't want it to be true. I mean, it's integrity. It's, it's real. It's raw. It's, it's uncommon. And it's madness. <laughs> I just don't want it to be true. Is that you? If it is, I want to tell you there's a better option to respond with. In fact, we see this in 1 Thessalonians 2. It's the other camp of, camp of people who don't just reject it out of hand because they were jealously guarding their own authority. No, no, it's the other people who we read in Acts 17 that were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. But why did they join them? Why were they persuaded? Jump to 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 and pick it up from there with me. This is what Paul says. He says, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Do you hear the difference of the response? It's a chalk and cheese response, isn't it? It's so different. Half heard the gospel and tisked at it. The other half, they heard Paul's message, the gospel of Jesus' universal authority, and they heard it as intended. They heard it with the authority of God himself. And how do we know that they heard it and understood it this way? Because it produced genuine, unambiguous, and relationally costly change in their life. I mean, Paul will go on to give a prime example of that, of what it looked like in verse 14. He says there that they became imitators of other Christian gatherings in Judea, even up to the point where they suffered rejection and persecution from their own countrymen. That's what it costs them. Now, just try and conceive of this for a minute. Just, just try to think how hard that would be for the Thessalonian converts. You know, I, I, I seriously... I genuinely think it's difficult, almost impossible for us to fully comprehend the, the difficulty of that sort of position they were in. I say that because, let's be honest, to claim Christianity or allegiance to Jesus in our culture, it does not bring with it the immediately, immediate or significant rejection and persecution from fellow Australians. Well, not, not yet anyways. It's on the rise. You might get a bit of a raised eyebrow. Some people don't even look twice at you. It's a big whoop situation. It's nothing like what's being described here. Now, I, I think this is more like what we saw in the video that Sarah showed us. This is more like becoming a Christian convert in a Muslim-dominated community in Pakistan. What's going on here looks more like the story that I read on the same website, Voice of the Martyrs, a group that we partner with and, and uh, financially and prayerfully support. I read this article just four days ago about a Christian Pakistani man named Arif uh, Massey, beaten, poisoned, eventually succumbing to his injuries and dying, all for seeking justice against two Muslim men from his, his community who had sexually assaulted his sister. Pakistani's blasphemy laws are such that anyone accused of insulting Islam or Muhammad can face jail, even up to jail, life in jail. They can even be executed. And occasions like Arif Masih's, they're not isolated. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Do you even want to imagine that? Can you imagine or consider that your very own neighbor, the people in your community, the person next door to you is the person who would treat you like that, who would reject you like that? Or because you were convinced on solid ground that Jesus' more ultimate and pressing universal authority was real and worthwhile 
even though it didn't square up with the popular thought. Can you, ima can you even imagine that? I'll tell you what, the Thessalonians could imagine it. It happened to them. So to the Judean Christians that Paul mentions, because it happened to them, as well as the millions of minority Christian families around the world still today, they can imagine it because it's happening to them. So it begs the question, doesn't it? Why do they persist? Why do they keep going? Why do people across the globe throw their lot in with Jesus in the first place if the potential cost, and in fact sometimes the, the probable cost, is, is that sort of persecution? I mean, say the word, mate, and you don't have to clean the sewers anymore. Seems like a pretty good option to me. It seems madness to hold on to something. Why would they continue to persist in that space? I'll tell you why. It's simply because they're convinced that Jesus' authority, that Jesus' power, and that Jesus' promises beyond the mere physical existence are bigger, better, and more evidential than anything that is offered in the natural world around them. They persevere and they persist simply because they've heard the gospel and they've accepted it as it is, not merely the words of men, but as it is the word of God. Let me ask you again, is that your attitude? Is that you? Is that how you read and understand and apply the Bible to your own life as it is intended? The word of God. God breathed, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. God inspired and Holy Spirit empowered, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.21. A couple of verses there to have a look at later for yourselves. Is that how you understand it? So much so that to differ from it or reject, reject any part of it is to pit yourself against the God of the universe. Do you get how enormous that is? Is that your position currently? Well, let me tell you, you see, my fear is, for people like us, my fear is not that we're going to reject the Bible outright or out of hand, just as the word of man. That's not my fear for us. My fear for us, for people like us, is that we will say that we accept it as God's word, but then subtly, yet actively, create space to minimize it, to dilute it, or to mute it in certain aspects of our lives where we just don't want God to intrude. Do you hear what I'm saying there? My fear is that we will subtly but actively create space to minimize, dilute, and mute it, God's word and God's authority in certain aspects of our lives because we just don't want his intrusion. You want to know what that looks like? You want to know what the dangers I think that we're susceptible to? This is what it could look like. It could look like accepting the Bible as God's word, but only through an assumption that because it's old, it's therefore antiquated and therefore not culturally appropriate or adequately equipped to deal with the complexities of our evolving societies or our scientific understanding. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you heard that sort of reasoning before? Have you heard that kind of position before? Ah, oh, it's a 2,000-year-old book. It's, it's too old to actually really keep up, keep pace with what's going on here. It sounds wise, it sounds on, but it's, it's way off. I mean, what does God say through Malachi? Malachi 3.6, he says, I, Yahweh, do not change. That same message is replete through the Psalms. Jesus has said the same thing of him in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now get this, the logical extension of that is that to assume somehow society has progressed past the point of God's wisdom or insight, it is a drastic error it's, it's a drastic error in judgment that only proves you don't understand the God you're dealing with. 
The God of the Bible, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the one in whom there is no potential. And what I mean by that is that there is no capacity for him to change because there is no necessity for him to change. He fills all things, Ephesians 1.28. He knows all things in their entirety, Psalm 139. He is outside of time, outside of space, unrestricted, completely sovereign, as extant in the past as he is in the present, as he is in the future. He knows no bounds outside of his own character, which is perfect and complete. Oh, yes, but modern culture has um, outgrown God. Give me a break. Are you kidding me? Is that the best we've got? And yet, let me just tone it down a little. (laughs) Sorry about that. No, I'm not. (laughs) But let me tone it down a little bit anyways. Let me be a little bit more generous to this line of questioning or this line of thought because I think there is a genuine aspect to that sort of concern. What I mean by that is, yes, God's self-revelation of his word does come through and to timely people. It comes to and through timely people. What I mean by that is ancient Israel, they are a vehicle for God's self-revelation. The first century Jews are a vehicle for God's self-revelation. But this timely revelation reveals in it God's timeless character, his timeless plans and his timeless priorities. Again, to reject his word as irrelevant is to misunderstand him completely. Do you get that? It's one of the ways, it's one of the dangers that we need to be very careful of uh, avoiding, trying to have your cake and eat it too, maintaining acceptance of, the God, of God's word or the Bible as God's word on one hand and then undermining as we see fit. And it's just not on. That's one potential error I think we're susceptible to, we need to be careful of. Here's another error we ought not feel victim, fall victim to. So you may say that you accept the Bible as God's timeless revelation of himself, of his plans and of his priorities, and that's good, it is. But do you know what it says? Have you bothered to read it? Do you give it that kind of weight and significance in your daily routine? Because if it is God's timeless revelation of himself written for you, could there be anything more important for you to know? Could there possibly be anything more pressing or significant for you to prioritize your time around than getting to know and growing in your understanding, love and obedience to the generous self-revelation of this God? Seriously, tell me if you've got a better option. It must be a cracker. I want to know. You see, it's my fear again here that too many of us have this view of the Bible as God's word, timeless and authoritative but we functionally treat it something more like we do grandma's pearls. We think of it as, you know, loosely connected gems of insight, of different size and shape. And we take it out and admire it from time to time, but then keep it locked away, hidden in between. It's not for daily wearing. We just bring it out on special occasions. Or else if it's not the grandma's pearls kind of attitude we adopt, then it's something more like the tonic in the medicine cabinet. And we only take a swig of it when we're feeling unsettled about something else in life. It's like the Rawley's man, you know, cure-all. When I feel like I need a bit of comfort or a bit of reassurance, I go to the old Bible and I whip her out and I have a swig and, ah, it's all settled down. Isn't that good? God's good. 
when my plans haven't gone my way, I just need a little bit, a little bit of a pick-me-up. Here we go. Now, don't get me wrong. God's word is exceedingly comforting and reassuring, no doubt about that, but it is much better. It is much bigger and more pressing. And what I mean is it's not just a tonic or a feel-good message to confirm me in everything I already think. I've got Facebook for that. So if you're reading the Bible in that fashion, stop it. In fact, what we ought to do is conceive of God's word as the way he describes it in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. It'll come on the screen for you. Here's what it says here. The writer of the Hebrews reminding them that for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all God's creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him, for the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. Friends, do you hear that? The irony there is awesome, actually. It's so funny because the Bible, you know, as originally given to us now, we consider it written in dead languages. Nobody speaks ancient Hebrew. Nobody speaks Aramaic. Nobody speaks Koine Greek. And yet here it's described as a living and active word of God. It's a scalpel. No, it's not a scalpel. It's a double-edged sword. And God uses it to cut deep. But when he does so, he does so like a skillful surgeon, not to hurt us, but to expose, well, the disease of disbelief, the infirmity of eternity, the sickness of sin. God's word, he does this with this sword. He does it not to crush us, but so that we might recognize the contagion of our fallen condition and turn instead to him to find fitness and forgiveness and wholeness in him. That is magnificent. That's what God's word's about. So let me ask you again, is it you? Or as I wrote it in your outlines there, I wrote the question, how do you approach the Bible? Do you approach it as the words of men? Do you approach it as an artifact of antiquity? Do you photo, uh, approach it as a string of pearls or a medicinal cure-all? Or do you approach it as it really is, the Word of God? Because the truth is, folks, there's plenty of options there, but there's only one choice to make. Now, it's at this point when I was writing uh, the sermon this week that I realized I'd only covered sort of one, maybe two verses of our section today. Uh, it's all right, we've only got 19 to go. At this rate, we should be done in about nine and a half hours. Um, I wonder if you've already had that moment, like when you're watching your favorite TV serial and you go, there's five minutes left. How are they going to tie up all these loose ends? It's not possible. What's going on? Is this going to be one of those to be continued sort of... Let me put your minds at rest. Rather than bang on for another nine and a half hours or do a to be continued, I thought it was important to actually labor this first point because it really is the foundational principle that will help you not only understand the rest of this chapter but indeed the whole of the Bible, if you get it right. Because the Bible is God's word and it comes to us with all his authority. Therefore, we need to be very careful that we treat it as such. So then rather, rather than try to attempt to unpack this in the same sort of uh, depth for the rest of those verses, let me just show you how this first point answers two other important issues raised in the text. I've posed them there on your outlines, if you've got one, as two other questions. How do you understand trials and hardship? How do you understand influence in the spiritual realm? And these issues are present in the text. I'll give you a whirlwind, a whirlwind sort of outline over them, but you'll need to join some of the dots for yourself. Sorry, Tiana, I know you hate that. Uh, the issues of trials and hardship, it's clearly there in the text. It was there, and I think Sarah brought it out well in the, the kids' talk. 
The fact that Paul's visit to the Thessalonians was cut short, in fact, he described it as being torn away from them in 2.17, it's indicative of the fact that his visit to them and the message he preached among them, it was not welcomed by all. It caused considerable stress and considerable hardship for lots of people. In fact, it caused, caused Paul a great deal of ongoing personal concern for the baby Christians in Thessalonica. These trials and hardships, he says in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, they were unsettling. Actually, bigger than that, Paul even says he feared demonic influence in relation to these trials and hardships. Did you notice that? Twice Paul mentions this through the letter. Two verse, uh, sorry, Chapter 2, verse 18, the fact that Paul desires to come back to them to strengthen and encourage their, their burgeoning faith, but, quote, Satan stopped us? Or Satan blocked our way? That's a curious statement, isn't it? Oh, likewise, he's expressed concern, uh, there, uh, the fear that he has in chapter 3, verse 5, that Satan, he referred to as the tempter, may have tempted them and somehow undermined their faith and confidence such that Paul's effort and time in preaching the gospel might actually prove useless after all. It's a strange concern that Paul has, given what we've just spoken about at length in relation to God's authority. Do you feel the tension here? Do you feel the tension here? You should. It's right to. It is a tension point in the text. But I want to say it's also a tension point that Paul reconciles in the text. Because although the trials and the hardships are real, and though the demonic influences, including Satan's desire to prevent and undermine gospel work, it is real, both of those things are subservient to the first point of God's more ultimate authority. We see this in the text. You see trials and hardships, both then and now, they are unsettling. But they're also completely under God's authority and control. Paul even speaks about them as being predestined by God in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He actually warns the Thessalonians beforehand, we should expect persecution, brothers and sisters. And as far as Satan influences, Satan's influence goes, the temptation and the opposition that he opposes towards believers, it is real, but God's power, wisdom and authority is such that he even uses Satan's opposition to stretch and strengthen believers into the sole reliance of God alone. In fact, this is the major conclusion that Paul realizes in this part of the letter. Because even though he's been torn away from them, chapter 2, verse 17, even though Satan's prevented his return, 2.18, even though he's worried that Satan's temptation may undermine the newly held gospel convictions, and even though he's felt it necessary to send Timothy back to strengthen and encourage them, chapter 3, verse 2, what's the ultimate result of all these trials and oppositions? Well, under the authority and control of a sovereign, loving and good God, even these serve to strengthen God's people. Look at it there in chapter 3, verse 6. As Paul recounts Timothy's report brought to him about these baby Christians under trial, facing temptation, what does he say? He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God? Because of you. Do you feel what's being said there? Do you get the weight of the enormity of that claim again? It is amazing. I mean, I feel, the, I feel something similar, and I hope you feel it too, when you see the Muslim, Christ, the, sorry, the Pakistani Christians 
persevering under such trial and torment. That actually God is able, even able to use this to grow in us a, an understanding or, or a pressing need for our dependence on him that we might stand up under the same if necessary. I mean, that's amazing. Paul worried about the strength of the Thessalonian faith because of the trials and the, because of the demonic, demonic, demonic opposition. Ironically, he finds his own faith strengthened as he realizes afresh that God is in control. As he realizes with renewed vigor that it's God's ultimate authority in his ultimate authority, even that which stands against God's people, even that he is using for their good and his glory so that they may go deeper in their trust of him. Friends, the same is true today. The same God is in control control over the, all the trials, over all the temptations, over all the spiritual influences that may exist in your life, and he's governing these with all authority so that you may know your personal need for him and his ultimate faithfulness to you through Christ to all who trust. Friends, that is an authority worth submitting to. When it comes to the question of authority, tell you what, I'm going, with, I'm going with the guy who's got it all. Friends, don't we all need to do that? As we finish up, let me, let me pray. But let me pray in line with Paul's own prayer here from chapter 3, verse 12 and onwards. Let me pray. And now, our God and Father, in response to your word today, we would ask that you would make our love for each other and for you overflow. May our hearts be strengthened so that we may be counted blameless and holy in your presence when Jesus returns, daily upheld and encouraged by your authority and your purpose in all things, through all things. And we pray this for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.